has focused on building fighter jets, missiles, and conventional warfighting capabilities. Our three principal rivals, Russia, Iran, and China, have increasingly adopted irregular warfare, cyber attacks, the use of proxy forces, propaganda, espionage, and of course, disinformation to undermine American power. Who are the people behind these tactics? And what can the United States do to counteract these dark forces before it's too late? Good evening and welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Kirsten Cullenberg, Programs Manager at the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. We're thrilled tonight to welcome Seth Jones, who's a Senior Vice President, Harold Brown Chair, and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Here to dive into the issues outlined in his book, Three Dangerous Men, Russia, China, Iran, and the Rise of Irregular Warfare. You can pre-order your copies of, oh, excuse me, order your copies of Three Dangerous Men through our local bookstore partner in Terabang Books, available now. Our audience received a 10% discount now through October 31st from Interrobang Books online store using the code DFWWORLD. So head to interrobangbooks.com to grab your copies right now. We are so pleased to welcome Steve Cole as our conversation moderator this evening. Steve is currently the Dean of the Columbia University School of Journalism and staff writer for The New Yorker. A two-time Pulitzer Prize winner, he was awarded his first prize for his work on the Securities and Exchange Commission as a financial correspondent for the Washington Post. With masterful talent for exhaustive research and prolific writing, Steve has since gone on to author several books, providing his readers the rare chance to take a peek behind the tightly drawn curtains of major institutions. In 2005, he was awarded his second Pulitzer Prize for, the work, for his book, Ghost Wars. It is a pleasure to welcome Steve back to Dallas, this time virtually. Uh, Steve, I'll now pass the proverbial microphone to you. Thank you very much. Thank you and welcome uh, everybody. I'm delighted to, to be here with Dr. Jones, who I will hereafter call Seth. And uh, I, I know this will be an enriching uh, conversation. Let me first uh, say just another word about uh, Seth. He has an extraordinary um, career already and um, much work yet to do. Um, as mentioned, he's the Harold Brown Chair and a Senior Vice President at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, uh, one of the largest and most influential policy research institutes in our capital. He leads a bipartisan team of over 50 resident staff and uh, an extensive network of non-resident affiliates. And their mission is to provide independent strategic insights and policy solutions that shape national security. He also teaches at Johns Hopkins SICE and the US Naval Postgraduate School. Uh, he was previously at RAND. Uh, he was previously at the US Special Operations Command where he liaised for the commander to the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations. Uh, he was um, a plans officer with US Special Operations Forces in Afghanistan. And um, that was the subject of the first of three prior books that he's authored uh, before the one we're going to discuss tonight, um, In the Graveyard of Empires, about America's war in Afghanistan, Hunting in the Shadows, um, about the pursuit of Al-Qaeda after 9-11, and um, uh, A Covert Action, um, which was about the CIA and the Cold War struggle in Poland. Um, and perhaps I've missed 
get a fourth book, Waging Insurgent Warfare, which I don't have on my shelf, but you'll send it to me. We're here tonight, though, to talk about something that really brings together a lot of threads in Seth's research and experience, uh, which is um, the challenge of asymmetric warfare facing the United States, um, um, not, in our, not in its future, um, very much in our present and in our recent experience of um, great power conflict and regional conflict. Um, I'm going to turn the explanations over to Seth in a minute, but my um, introduction to our discussion is that what I'd like to do is first talk about our adversaries uh, who constitute the subject of the book, Three Dangerous Men, uh, three individuals who command irregular operations in each of Russia, Iran, and China, uh, and try to unpack a little bit um, their approaches, what makes them distinct, what common strategies uh, Russia, Iran, and China follow in cyberspace, uh, in information operations, uh, disinformation, fabrication, propaganda, and also in other forms of a kind of irregular coercion. Um, so let's talk about the adversary and then let's talk about uh, where we are. Uh, and, and Seth has um, you know, a pointed sense that we're not far enough along in our understanding and response uh, to this uh, hybrid warfare that we, we now so clearly face. And we'll hear from him about what we should be doing and how we should be understanding and look forward to your questions in the audience as, as we wrap up our kind of two-part conversation. So Seth, let me, let me ask you um, uh, to walk us as, as uh, I know it's a big question, but walk us as succinctly as you can through the three uh, uh, biographies and strategies that you uh, analyze in the book. And I guess my question is, uh, in cyberspace, in information operations, uh, what are Russia, China, and Iran doing uh, similarly? And what is it that, that distinguishes them as adversaries of the United States in, in the way that they use irregular warfare to, to challenge us? Thanks, Steve. Uh... Great question. I'll try to be succinct, and uh, I probably will leave a lot on the table. And let me just say that the kind of motivating uh, factor in writing the book was, I mean, there's been a lot written on what some of these countries are doing. Uh, there were two motivating factors. One is um, to pick up on the uh, B.H. Littleheart, the, the uh, British military theorists, it tells the story of uh, John Wilson Croker, um, goes on a journey with the Duke of Wellington and as they're passing time, walking through the countryside and at every hill, uh, Croker expresses surprise that Wellington can forecast what is on the other side of the hill. And he says, how essentially, how, how are you able to do that? And Wellington says, well, I've spent my entire life trying to guess what is at the other side of the hill and that really that every notable general and, and military officer has to be able to understand what is going on in the head of his adversaries. So part of this was a turn to Russian literature and uh, military journals and the statements of individuals like Valery Gerasimov the same thing on the Chinese side and the, the, uh, the Iranian side as well. So it was a huge effort, frankly, to translate large volumes of material 
in part to understand. And the Chinese were actually the most surprising to me how little actual substantive work has been translated into English. Uh, certainly not, we're not on the same position we were in the Cold War with the Foreign Broadcast Information Service uh, and all the, the work to understand the Soviets. So, so, so what that led me to do is to look at, at, at uh, three of the most influential individuals. I'll just touch on them briefly and then we can spend more time talking about them. The first one, Valery Gerasimov, the chief of the army staff, I think certainly the most influential military officer in, uh, in Russia, has been generally uh, uh, talked about because he's written extensively on uh, the US and broader Western operations, the color revolutions that he says the US has been involved in, their work in Afghanistan, Iraq, and other places. And I think what I found interesting is is how Gerasimov effectively took what he considered some of the lessons of the U.S. in using irregular operations, uh, uh, cyber operations, uh, use of special operations and intelligence units. And then around 2013 and 2014, started to do that himself. And, and so we see that the Russians taking Crimea without really firing a shot with a heavy dose of Spetsnaz in Crimea, and then they moved to Eastern Ukraine, where we see again a heavy use, not of Russian conventional forces uh, uh, or even air power, but a heavy dose of Spetsnaz, Special Operations Forces Intelligence Units, and then probably the most aggressive offensive cyber campaign we've ever seen uh, targeting a foreign government, taking down critical infrastructure of the Ukrainian government with black energy and Industroyer and gray energy, and then similarly in, in Syria, where the Russians, in cooperation with the Iranians, you know, a big chunk of the maneuver force in Syria was Lebanese Hezbollah to retake Aleppo and uh, some of the Iraqi militias, the Hashid al-Shabi, and some of the Palestinian and Afghan and other militias. So we see the Russians uh, doing this. We've also seen the Russians use uh, hacktivist organizations, non-state actors in the colonial pipeline attack in the US that uh, those of us in the East Coast felt when we tried to fill up our gas tanks. Um, so range of these kinds of operations uh, that Gerasimov has been instrumental. One thing that's been a little different with the Russians uh, than some of the other organizations is how much they've also used private military companies in conjunction with uh, the GRU, the main intelligence director in the military, as well as the SVR, the, the, the foreign intelligence agency. So we've seen them in, in places like uh, uh, Barango, Central African Republic, in Libya, in Mozambique. Um, and, and Gerasimov has been really at the front and center of the strategy, all the way down to some of the tactics that GRU have used under him. On the Chinese side, uh, Zhang has been probably the most well, he's one of the only senior uh, Chinese officials with any battlefield experience. Uh, he, he's the vice chairman of the CMC, the, the military commission in China. Uh, there's no question uh, that he is among the one or two most powerful military figures by far in China. This is the country that gave us Sun Tzu, where uh, successful warfare is actually uh, uh, achieving objectives without fighting. And they've also given us Mao. And we've seen with, with Zhang some differences. Steve, you asked about differences and similarities. We, we, we've seen the, the Chinese leverage 
what I would call political and particularly economic uh, activities and technological ones. So a heavy focus on using the trade and infrastructure that's gone with Belt and Road Initiative to pursue political objectives, uh, uh, to push governments uh, to adjudicate on issues that uh, matter a lot to China, Hong Kong, the state of Hong Kong, or the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, or, uh, or Tibet. Um, and so we've seen economic investments lead to substantial pressure. Uh, the, the real good example of irregular operations with Russia was Crimea with the Chinese. Uh, similarly, it was the Spratleys. So the uh, Chinese take the Spratleys not by deploying large numbers of PLA or even uh, uh, fighters, army soldiers, or even naval vessels, uh, but they do it with dredgers. Um, so they essentially build what were atolls or reefs. They build military bases uh, that have today signals intelligence collection platforms. And, and they've got electronic warfare capabilities. They've got radar, they've got cruise and ballistic missiles. They've got airstrips where they've, where they've uh, deployed strike fighters and, and strategic bombers. So again, uh, similarities with the Russians in the uh, Chinese also use of uh, offensive cyber operations uh, against the US and a range of its partners, which we can, we can talk through. And then just finally, briefly on the Iranians, uh, this is where Qasem Soleimani, uh, uh, who was killed by the U.S. in a strike in Iraq in 2003, uh, sorry, in, in, in December of uh, January 2020 uh, in, in Iraq at the airport. With Soleimani, I think what's a little different about the, the Iranians is that irregular activities or asymmetric activities really are the only option, only major option of the Iranians. I mean, it's interesting when we look at their air force or army, they, I mean, they've got, in some cases, they've got U.S. tanks from the Shah period. Same thing with some of their airplanes. They're from the U.S. assistance programs of the 1960s and 70s. So with the Iranians, we see, uh, well, slightly different approach, a heavy focus on building partners with Lebanese Hezbollah, and with the Hashid al-Shabi in uh, the Popular Mobilization Forces in Iraq and the, the Houthis in Yemen. So extensive training and equipment, sophisticated uh, uh, capabilities, cruise missiles, uh, offensive drones that the Iranians have provided to, to some of these actors uh, and fairly extensive ballistic missile and cruise missile capabilities. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at leeb at dbu.edu. Um, again, the Iranians don't pose much of a conventional threat, uh, but much more of an irregular one. And this sort of brings me to my last point, which is uh, this is never about either conventional or irregular. But I guess the concern that I have with how much focus the US, including the Department of, of Defense, have focused on adversaries such as China, Steve, 
that, you know, any of the war games that I've participated in, they're, these look like the Battle of Midway or, you know, the full the gap scenarios during World War, uh, during the Cold War, the Soviets coming across the inter-German plane. I mean, this is not in general the way most of these countries are thinking about uh, competing with the U.S. It's just too powerful uh, to try to take on an, an escalation of nuclear war is something that worries everybody. So these are regular means, economic coercion, support to non-state uh, partners, covert action, information and disinformation campaigns, including cyber operations. These are the day-to-day -day instruments used by these uh, powers. So that, that's kind of the glue that brings them all together. That's excellent. I mean, let's just pick up there um, and in turn, at least for the moment to the US, uh, your thesis is that we're unprepared and you make the point that um, the war games you've participated in look um, anachronistic. But the idea of hybrid war has been around at least since the 2009 Hezbollah-Israeli con conflict. It's got a lot of attention in, in your kinds of institutions. And um, and the U.S. Um, you know, has been standing up a cyber command and thinking about um, structure. So why fundamentally, if, if this is your view, why are we um, inadequately prepared and focused on, on what does seem uh, such a central strategy of, of our most important adversaries? Well, Steve, you're right. I mean, there's no question that the U.S. has taken some actions. I mean, the community that I come from uh, has has been the tip of the spear in some areas against the Iranians, for example. The Islamic Revolutionary Guards, Quds Force, special operations have been dealing with the IRGC Quds Force for some time. Uh, certainly in even my deployments in Afghanistan, they were a significant concern. I think the, uh, I mean, there, there are two comments. One is uh, one of the areas we see extensive focus by, the, uh, by a range of competitors, including the Russians and the Iranians is information and disinformation. Uh, and we saw a fair amount of this kind of activity during the Cold War where the Russians used active measures. This was service A of the KGB. I think the challenge is we still, we're woefully prepared for this kind of activity. Now, I mean, in my view, the US is, should, should never be in the disinformation or even in the misinformation business, but it certainly should be in the information business. And I think this is where the US's strengths were clearest in the 1980s, the last decade of the Cold War, where Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, Voice of America were beamed in to Eastern Europe and you know, had an effect. I mean, one of the things when I interviewed Lech Wałęsa for my last book on covert action, the CIA's program, QR Helpful, to provide covert assistance to solidarity in Poland. One of the things Lech Wałęsa, uh, who became the president, the head of solidarity, said to me was, I mean, he got his, you know, they, they grew tired of uh, state-run, Soviet-influenced uh, Polish media. And he got a lot of his, news from the BBC and Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, that was broadcast illegally uh, into Poland from places like West Germany. And, and you know, if you fast forward to today, we, we've got no U.S. information agency. We have a really under-resourced global engagement center, which is 
frankly, spends more time uh, providing money to research institutions to study problems than it does really conducting uh, actions itself. This is, this is in part a public diplomacy State Department function. But I think what we're lacking is, is key areas. And I think we've been lacking also, I mean, I, I think that the, up until very recently, a key focus on it. CIA has taken some steps very recently to build a CIA China uh, mission, which I think is a big step forward. There was news this past week that uh, special operations forces are now training in Taiwan for irregular gray zone activity by the Chinese in the region. That's definitely a step forward. This is the kind of stuff I think that in addition to building F-35s and deploying aircraft carriers, which are probably not ever going to be used for actual combat if deterrence holds. These are the kinds of things that I think are actually going to be uh, important. So you mentioned information op op operations and information. That's my, my world in, in journalism. I don't know if you ever read uh, the Christopher Andrew history based on um, Vasily Matrokin's files from the KGB archives, The Sword and the Shield, but it, it provided a documentary record of KGB information operations during the Cold War. And um, a lot of them looked ineffective with the benefit of hindsight. I mean, kind of laughable in some cases. They would scribble um, you know, some piece of slander about Scoop Jackson on a piece of paper and drop it in the car of a parked car of an American diplomat in Jer Jerusalem, hoping that it would somehow leach into the American news system. And it, it, it really seemed um, a kind of, you know, throwing a small stones into a big pond. Today, admittedly, we're quite a polarized society when we think about information and, and media. Um, but I, I suppose probably on both sides of the polarization, there's a sense that that these operations are more effective than they were during the Cold War, that we really are being destabilized by propaganda from abroad or by our own arguments about whether there's propaganda from abroad. And I wonder in, when you step back, because you use the Cold War as a template for some of your proposed solutions for the United States, but when you look back on the struggle um, for supremacy in, in these spheres during the Cold War. Do you think that the, for example, the Russians are, are much more effective now than they were uh, in the 60s or the 70s? Yeah, I, I, I mean, there were certainly effective KGB covert action programs. I mean, I think and there, there were a number that, that as, they, as there are, are uh, likely to be in general, there were, there were a number that failed. There were, I think the AIDS campaign, Operation Infection or Operation Denver, as the, as, the, as the Soviets called it, was, I think, verifiably effective in impacting public opinion in the United States, but more importantly, in Africa, which was the target location that the US military and specifically labs at Fort Detrick, Maryland, had produced the AIDS virus and either purposefully or accidentally uh, that it had leaked out and was now infecting people in the 1980s uh, across the globe, including in Africa. And we, you saw, I mean, there were organizations like RAND that did public opinion surveys in Africa over the years and found that a growing number of 
uh, uh, percentage of populations, including in West Africa and North Africa, believed uh, the, this, what was essentially a KGB covert action uh, campaign, as well as it was an interesting RAND study that uh, populations, African-American populations in the US also uh, believed it. So there were some effective programs, but I think the, the, the Russians are better now in part because uh, or, or at least the landscape is uh, better for them today. I mean, at the very least, they have a polarized uh, climate in the U.S. on a lot of issues. I mean, I testified, Steve, before the House Veterans Affairs uh, Committee today on domestic extremism, and it expectedly was an incredibly polarized uh, discussion by members. Uh, I was a witness. And this should have been a pretty straightforward issue in previous years, possibly on the threat in the United States from domestic extremists. But it was heavily polarized. And you can see it also in Me Too movement. You can see it on the, on the gun, gun lobby. You can see it on a whole range of issues. Uh, and what, what the Russians have done, and, and it's, it's really two organizations. It's, it's the GRU, which sits under Gerasimov, and it's the SVR that have conducted fairly effective campaigns to influence elections, to, uh, to uh, push uh, disorder. I mean, the objective of these campaigns, I think has been straightforward. As I've talked to current and, and former Russian officials, uh, they've been pretty straightforward. These generally, these disinformation campaigns are not to, choose one candidate over another, they're just so disorder in the US. And they, they have, I mean, a senior Russian official said to me, it, it's hard to get a better climate uh, than what they have right now in the United States. People will believe almost anything, uh, especially if it's couched in a way that, uh, you know, coming from a, a, a fake uh, uh, Facebook account or a Twitter account that they associate with. They're a veteran. It's couched as a veteran. If they're religious, you know, uh, uh, a Christian fundamentalist, it's couched in those ways, and they'll push out and for it. So I think the climate is particularly uh, conducive to these actions uh, from from adversaries. Yes, and of course, the structure of um, media in the United States has changed since the Cold War. For, for better and for worse, there are no gatekeepers anymore. And so um, if you want to distribute these messages, um, you can do so directly as, as we've seen um, in different settings. But um, let, me, let me come back to this, this kind of question of what the US might be doing. Um, and let's talk for a, a moment just about cyber. I think we're all aware of how disruptive um, cyber attacks against the United States are becoming. Um, there's, there's no sense that um, we are in control of this conflict. Uh, ransomware and, and other attacks are disrupting uh, life. It feels like we're, you know, it feels a little bit like the drumbeat that led to 9-11, that we're gonna have some big shock and we're all gonna look back at all these cases that led up to it and say, what were, why, why didn't we expect this? Uh, because, um, uh, yeah, it, it is. It is. It does feel like a drumbeat in any event. And I guess my question is, as a as a modestly informed student of our participation in cyber conflict, I have the impression that 
the investments we've been making have been offensive where we have advantages in that we, we can um, uh, develop uh, military operations with offensive capabilities and, and strategies. And we can be quite effective um, both in conducting those operations and in signaling our ability to do so as a deterrent but that we are um, very poorly situated on defense uh, because of our mixed private public uh, system. We have no uniform standard. Uh, it's all based on the self-interest of different institutions and, and their willingness to invest. And so we get these anomalies, like we have these poorly funded community utilities whose shutdown would be quite disruptive, but unlike the Bank of America, they don't see an existential threat and they don't have the resources to do anything about it. And, in, and our Congress and our policymakers have been unable to find a, a consensus that would allow us to be more effective on defense. So my question to you is, first of all, do you disagree with that basic portrait? Is defense important? What can we as a practical matter do about it? Or should we just be seeking deterrence through the sharpest edged offensive capabilities and signaling that we can develop against the Russians and Chinese? Wow, these are really, really challenging questions in part because the cyber domain is very different from where the deterrence literature originated from, which was, uh, or one of the most important areas that originated from, which was the nuclear arena. And in the nuclear arena, there are pretty straightforward uh, cases of using nuclear weapons against your adversary. So deterrence holds, we know, because uh, once you have a second strike capability, both sides are able then to inflict massive damage on each other's populations. And therefore they generally have not, uh, they haven't used them. No nuclear state has used nuclear weapons against another nuclear state. This is what we call mutually assured destruction. The challenge in the cyber realm is you can sort of go up and down the spectrum. And so what, what even with the colonial pipeline attack recently, you know, the Russians said, look, this was not us. Uh, and I think the intelligence actually did also suggest this was not the GRU, it was not the SVR. These were hackers operating from Russian territory. Now I have worked against the Russians for long enough to know that nobody operates in Russia without the awareness of the Russian government. There are just too many, uh, too many costs involved along those lines. So, I mean, part of the challenge is deterrence, I think, on many parts of the spectrum on the cyber realm are just, they're impossible because uh, you can get away with a range of these activities. On, let me just start with the offense. Uh, um, I think you're right to point out that the US's offensive capabilities are significant, uh, particularly those from NSA, the National Security Agency. The challenge with offense though, and having been involved in discussions while in government and then out of government on offensive cyber action is the US is also vulnerable to cyber attacks. So conducting an offensive action, cyber action, because the US is so open, does risk response to a very open society. So there are dangers inherent in off offensive cyber operations. There's the technical ability to do them, but there's also the vulnerability of a response attack as well, which does bring me to defense. And I think 
Steve, I, I, I think without a doubt, uh, you have put your finger on a big part of the problem on defenses uh, is a lot of this is poorly structured. The government is never going to be able to control the uh, cyber defense uh, of corporations. Um, and what we've seen, I've talked to a couple of CEOs recently who have been pretty straightforward. If they've got to make a quick decision with a ransomware attack about paying, even if the, there is a probability they might not get the key immediately or losing you know, large amounts of money over time, they're probably going to pay. And, and I think this, and, and in some cases, it's because they weren't quick enough to patch a vulnerability that someone had identified, sent out a, a notice to patch a and they weren't quick enough to respond. And the PLA, the SVR, the GRU uh, took advantage of their, I mean, this is what happened with, in the book, I described this somewhat, this was the Equifax attack that the PLA conducted against Equifax that took half of Americans' uh, information Probably, I mean, certainly mine, probably yours, and probably most of the people here uh, took all their uh, uh, information, their social security number, home addresses. Uh, that was a just, uh, Equifax did not respond quick enough. I don't know how we're ever gonna get entirely around this, but I will say that a big chunk of this has to be, uh, corporations have to find ways to come together with the government uh, to be able to move quickly to identify patches and to respond. And so, I mean, we'll be vulnerable. I don't know how we get around that, but I think there are steps along those lines, including ones that you suggested that we need to think a lot more systematically about and quickly. Thank you. Uh, let me now start to mix in some questions from the audience and uh, have one from our host that's excellent. It says, uh, you know, in your book, you discuss how our adversaries think about war, not as war and peace as we tend to, and as states have tended to over the recent centuries, but as war measures short of war, an entire continuum of possibilities. Now, you can argue that the U.S. has some of this mindset, uh, certainly, you know, in its covert action capabilities and in some of the cyber operations you were just discussing, but how is the US set up or not set up to go about defending against combating this kind of warfare? Well, uh, let me first start off by just identifying terminology. I, I started off by giving the Croker uh, Duke of Wellington argument on the other side of the hill. And I think here it's important to understand terminology. I mean, what do some of these countries, what kind of terms do they use? When, when, when many Americans think of warfare, even Europeans will often go to Clausewitz and their war is really about violence. Uh, it's about force on force activity on a battlefield, pitch battle, but it's violence. If you go to uh, the Chinese, you know, one of the most important terms that, that the Chinese have is uh, Sun Zhong Zhanfa or three warfares. Three warfares, none of them involve violent activity. The first is media warfare, which involves active information operations within the public domain, sometimes in some cases what we call public diplomacy. Uh, the second is legal warfare, which involves actions 
that are in the lawfare space. So one example of this is uh, in the dispute over sovereignty in the South China Sea, the Philippines took the Chinese to court at The Hague. The Hague rules in favor of the Philippines that China does not have sovereignty over those islands. The Chinese response is, we, we, just, we simply don't uh, 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 believe in, support the legitimacy of The Hague. I mean, it's just not a, a legal body that, uh, that has any jurisdiction over us. So this is where, that's the lawfare component. And then the third is psychological warfare, PSYOPs. All of these don't, none of these involve warfare. The, the Iranians have a term, jung e norm, soft war. Again, where, where we start to run into some problems is in, in some cases, even discussions I've had since the book has come out, you know, some activities that the US has to take uh, for offensive cyber operations are confined to violent war activities, uh, including, so think for a moment that the, the US conducted cyber operations against the Iranians uh, uh, recently after the Iranians took down a uh, U.S. drone flying in and around the Persian Gulf and after the Iranian strikes against Abqaiq and Karaiz. So These were acts of war as defined by the use of violence. Part of the issue, I think, is recognizing that warfare is about competition. It's about increasing influence and about weakening your adversary. And I think this is where we were in the last decade of the Cold War recognizing that information is an important component of warfare. And Steve, I think this, again, to come back to this area, is the, air, is the area where I think the US is among the weakest right now with institutions that are poorly designed, poorly funded to be involved in information, even State Department public diplomacy. Uh, and I, I think that's the area uh, with this broader definition of warfare that I think the U.S. is not well uh, aligned to conduct. Yeah, well, and and I, you know, I I, I can, um, you know, I agree with that. If you're describing the relative weakness of, you know, Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, compared to what they were during the '80s, um, or compared to what they are today, when um, even many of our allies um, outcommunicate us in traditional information, but very influential channels, the BBC, um, you know, even um, I-24 out of Israel and, and, and you know, um, France 24. There, there are so many uh, channels out there that, that have a, a very ambitious uh, goal and, and execute, um, you know, quite credibly compared to where we're at now. But let me ask you, maybe this is going to be too big of a question, and then I'll, I'll turn back to our audience. But my sense of your um, recommendations is that you're urging us to both um, understand the enemy uh, by reading in their language, uh, reading their words, taking their doctrines seriously, but also uh, to reset our own strategic vision, um, perhaps by uh, reminding ourselves of some of the strategies and, and kind of consistent postures that, that succeeded during the Cold War. And um, I guess my, my kind of devil's advocate question is um, twofold. We call it asymmetric war because 
our adversaries require non-conventional means to challenge us because we are so strong conventionally in our conventional forces and nuclear forces. Um, isn't a lesson of the Cold War that we should maintain our conventional, massive conventional superiority? Uh, yes, get smarter in these other areas, but have confidence that if we um, project uh, power around the world and also um, stay true to our own democratic values and in spirit of innovation and that we will continue to be an attraction uh, to populations and, and uh, even members of foreign governments who, who uh, see us as a better way. Um, so is that an either or strategy or is, is your argument that we really sh should be trying to do both? I think we we need to do both. I mean, one of the one of the interesting parts about the book is that I went on the record with several secretaries of defense, CIA directors, heads of special operations, and actually one of the benefits, interestingly, of COVID is uh, these interviews were conducted. Their travel schedules shrank significantly, <laughs> so I could get them at home as we're doing right now virtually and. And in talking to former Secretary of Defense, Bob Gates, he made a very compelling point to me, which was that, that conventional and nuclear capabilities are important and that US adversaries need to recognize, appreciate, and even in some cases fear American power. But the issue is, so this is, this is why it's not an either or uh, one. But at the end of the day, particularly with nuclear powers, if deterrence is successful, that is if the Chinese or the Russians or the Iranians are deterred from using conventional forces to fight us on a battlefield, say for example, Chinese conventional forces, air, maritime, uh, and even land forces to retake Taiwan, if they're deterred from doing that because they see U.S. military conventional, as well as nuclear capabilities in and around the uh, Taiwan Strait. If that's the case and deterrence holds, then, as Gates noted, and I think convincingly, that these states will and have historically resorted then to irregular means below the thresholds of conventional war. And I think this is where this challenge is to also recognize. So, so one concrete example of this is Taiwan. Uh, and again, we have O plans, uh, operational plans in the Department of Defense uh, in case of a Chinese conventional invasion of Taiwan. This is how the United States is gonna respond. I've seen those plans. Um, we have not really thought about irregular means to retake Taiwan through subversion in some ways, the way the Chinese took the South China Sea, the Spratleys, uh, using electronic warfare or heavy MSS uh, Chinese intelligence activity uh, or heavy offensive cyber operations, political influence campaigns and covert action inside of Taiwan. This has not been part of our operational plans. And it's, it's that that I'm talking about has to also be integrated in how we're thinking about uh, scenarios like Taiwan. It's not, it can't just be conventional because as we've seen with territorial control in Crimea, and as we've seen with territorial control in the Spratlys, these countries are absolutely willing to use means below those thresholds 
to seize territory. And I, so that's the part that I'm urging us uh, to, to, to continue to think through. Are there examples in your mind um, from the last 20 years where adversaries of the United States have achieved by irregular means a goal that we um, in our declared policy or in our national interests should have, uh, that, that we were prepared to defend by conventional means. In other words, a case where irregular measures have defeated our conventional deterrent. Well, I, I, think, uh, uh, I think there were, there have been cases um, in, in my interviews with senior Russian officials, uh, they thought very long and hard about Ukraine and what measures to take to punish Ukraine, to weaken, to undermine Ukraine, uh, following the government's uh, shift from pro-Russian to pro-European, pro-Western, pro-American. And so here, uh, this was a decision to first take Crimea and then to move into Eastern Ukraine using irregular means because they were worried that sending in conventional forces, Russian forces into Ukraine on the border of uh, several Article 5 uh, or close to several Article 5 NATO members would have created serious concern and would have potentially led to a conventional response. So, I mean, I think in that case, the Russians almost certainly were deterred from conventional means in Ukraine and then chose, again, as I mentioned earlier, heavy Spetsnaz, GRU, SVR, uh, heavy offensive cyber campaigns, and then the East, you know, the, the little green men that were used to start an insurgency and build the capacity of rebel Ukrainian rebel groups in Donbass and other locations. I, I think that's about as, that's one interesting example where I do think the Russians were deterred from sending in large numbers of forces because of what the response might have been. Yeah. Well, we could go down that road. It's, um, it's, it's a very interesting space, especially when you think about um, Article 5 allies like Poland or, um, you know, Poland uh, uh, and, and the inroads that uh, Russia has made in influence operations just there. Um, I'm sure you, you know that country well to comment about that. But if you, if you have something to add um, about um, Russia's potential to undermine the European Union, uh, to undermine NATO cohesion, and how urgent a threat you think that is, I'd be interested to hear it. It was obviously a Soviet um, intention during the Cold War as well, and not to say they didn't have any success in, in Germany and other places, but um, I just wonder how serious you think the threat is to uh, you know, our NATO allies and, and the European Union as an institution. Well, I think there are several areas of concern. One is the uh, influence, uh, Russian influence in several political parties. It's generally clandestine. They use front shell companies. We've seen, we've seen uh, some success and some countries move into the much more authoritarian regime. And the, the Russians have certainly encouraged that and provided funding and support. So Hungary, for example, 
I mean, I think even the direction Poland has gone in some cases, Russians have to be careful in Poland because there's a long history of animosity among Poles. But uh, Hungary is probably, you know, the quintessential example of uh, some Russian uh, activity uh, to support a government so that it becomes much more pro-Russian. Its uh, authoritarian tendencies have only strengthened. Um, I think if we look at uh, the, uh, the offensive campaign that the Russians have taken on the information side to the Baltic states, uh, I think there, there has been concern and war games have indicated concern about Russian conventional advance. Uh, the Russians though, I think so far have been deterred from that kind of activity. And instead we see massive efforts uh, to influence the Russian speaking population uh, to try to undermine the governments in all three Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. We've also seen Russian uh, heavy uh, e emphasis on providing assistance generally to far right uh, political parties in Europe. We've seen them support the expansion of the church. And then this has always been an important part of, of uh, active measures. We've seen uh, Russian assassinations against defectors or against uh, Russians that have spoken out against the government in, in countries like um, uh, the UK. In fact, I, I think one of the things that has come to light and certainly in the course of the book is looking at offensive GRE, GRU campaigns, uh, Russian intelligence campaigns that are kinetic. They've involved uh, uh, Czech, a, a bombing of a Czech ammunition depot some assassination plots in Hungary, uh, in, in the Balkans, obviously uh, in the UK, the attempted assassination of Navalnov. So I, I think uh, uh, Navalny, so we've, we've seen multiple efforts. The last thing that, that is almost a Russian, uh, Russians taken a piece of the playbook that the Chinese have done with Belt and Road Initiative is the energy uh, pipeline. So, and I think, it does certainly concern me that if we see an increase in tension uh, between several major European governments and the Russians, that Germany, for example, now will be vulnerable to turning off the spigots uh, okay. from the Russians. Yes. And that yes. is the source of what we call irregular or asymmetric power. Right. Well, yes. Eyes wide open. Uh, the Germans went into that. Um, so, uh, okay, we have a couple of questions here I'll combine because it seems as if um, one uh, aspect of your argument is that, um, as was true during the Cold War, to strengthen our um, durability in the face of these threats, we need to put our own house in order. We need to um, you know, live up to our own potential as a democracy uh, and to be a source of attraction in, in so many ways, not just a source of strength. And, um, you know, it is remarkable when you look back at our troubled domestic history during the 1960s and 1970s, that uh, nonetheless, um, we managed to, to maintain um, an influential position, um, you know, around the world, uh, given the, the, relative terror of living um, in the Soviet Union or People's Republic of China at that time. Um, so, so here are two questions. Um, the first 
is about our own conduct of irregular warfare. You've alluded to some of these constraints before. Shouldn't the US play more honorably when conducting warfare and be the gold standard for clean warfare? Why should we stoop down to our enemies' levels instead of working to keep warfare and conflict more honorable? This is from Anish Vandantam. And then another uh, uh, audience member asks, what do we need to do to diminish our vulnerability of being politically and socially divided, um, even as we deindustrialize de ourselves, uh, you know, which is obviously one of the sources of, of uh, structural inequality and, and polarization that we've faced in this country over the last 10 to 20 years? Great questions, obviously ones that uh, we could probably discuss in yet another session here. Um, just briefly, uh, on the on the uh, uh, the Steve, the first question was um, sort of why shouldn't can we play? Shouldn't we play? Oh, clean yeah, because we're trying yeah, to so, win, win that so, that space. Yeah. So on that, I mean, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, the U.S., in my view, should not get in into the business at all of mis or disinformation. I, I think the most effective uses of U.S. information, and this can be both government and the private sector, uh, that includes journalists, that includes research institutions and others, is simply to tell the truth about what is happening. I mean, these are all authoritarian regimes that I've talked about un under Qasem Soleimani and his successor, um, Ismail Khani, under Gerasimov and under Zhang. And so what we see is human rights abuses. Uh, we see the arrest, torture, assassination of defectors and political opponents. Uh, we see you know, leveraging of uh, economic campaigns like the Belt and Road Initiative. That includes heavy influences of Chinese labor rather than local workers. We see corruption and cheating scandals. Um, it is widely known that in general, in order to get promoted within the People's Liberation Army in China, you generally have to resort to bribery and extortion. And this has led to corruption scandals. Uh, the attempt to use coercion against uh, foreign companies, uh, foreign to them, so U.S. companies, what's been done to the NBA when a general manager from the Houston Rockets, not far from uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, criticized China for its Hong Kong, its steps in Hong Kong. The Chinese responded by taking uh, the NBA offline in, in China, so uh, stopping the broadcast for over a year cost the uh, the NBA, hundreds of millions of dollars or the pressure that's put on Hollywood, uh, the great firewall, the Iran's halal, the run net in Russia. Um, there are all kinds of activities, I think, that can be highlighted. And so getting information into these uh, populations about the behavior of their countries, I think at the end of the day was successful. In fact, in fact, on this front, there's been a very interesting series of uh, research in Russian, in defense journals, noting that the Russians did not lose the Cold War and the Soviet Union did not collapse because they were defeated on the battlefield. It's because they lost the information war. And I, and I think just briefly on the last point, my colleague at CSIS, Suzanne Spaulding, has done incredible work on civic education in the U.S., 
and building a civic infrastructure, including in the school systems, to better wrap our hands around dis and misinformation. I think a big chunk of that starts with our schools and education. Thank you uh, once again, Dr. Jones, and uh, appreciate your, your wide-ranging and very crisp uh, remarks um, in the face of often complex and abstract questions from your moderator. So you did a great job, and I'm sure our audience appreciated it. Thank you, um, folks, for joining us and for your smart questions, and let me turn it back to our hosts. Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, gentlemen, thank you so much for that in-depth conversation. You're right. These are incredibly complex issues. So the more that we can learn from experts such as you, um, the, the better that we, we have an understanding we all will have. So thank you for joining us. Before we sign off tonight, I'd like to remind our viewers to order their copies of Three Dangerous Men at Interabang Books, our local bookstore partner. Again, you can use the code DFWWORLD for 10% off your online purchase, which is applicable now through the end of this month. I'd like to quickly thank our friends at the World Affairs Council of Charlotte for partnering with us and joining us online tonight. It's always so wonderful to work across the National Council Network, and I invite you all to join us virtually anytime. And I'd be remiss if I didn't invite all of our webinar attendees to become members of the World Affairs Council if you are not already. And don't forget, giving the gift of council membership is always a fantastic option, especially as we approach this holiday season. So please keep us in mind for that. Visit dfwworld.org membership for more information. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you to our uh, speaker and our wonderful moderator. You all have a great evening.